There's a friend of mine. Um, I met him back in South Dakota long before I came here. His name is Carl Hale. Uh, Mr. Hale grew up in a religious home. Um, He was caught between Catholicism and and Presbyterianism uh, from his parents. And he was exposed to the teachings um, about God and Jesus Christ in those traditions. But none of what he encountered um, seemed to uh, convince him that, that those were the answers to the important questions in life. He states that by the time he was an uh, early adolescence, he had already become a cynic and a pessimist about God and his creation. Mr. Hale had begun to fully embrace a stance of unbelief, and this was in his early years. That's such an easy thing to do in this world, is it not? He had so many things to fuel his unbelief. Secularism taught in the public schools, the influence of college classes and professors, secular philosophy, and many other godless religions. He writes, plagued by serious doubts about God, my spiritual life was more or less a stillbirth. Mr. Hale was entering into full skepticism. His doubts turned into confident denials, uh, and those confident denials were that God did not exist. He says that by the end of his freshman year at Indiana University, he was a self-proclaimed atheist. To confidently assert that God does not exist is at the same time a full denial of Jesus Christ and his saving work. For you cannot believe that God is capable of mercy if you don't believe that God exists. He sternly rejected that prerequisite, that requirement to believe that Jesus was the risen Lord. Carl goes on to say, Soon I experienced the despair and darkness that falls upon those who are cut off from God by their own pride. Unbelief only leads to darkness, and darkness will take you to a place of despair. There is no hope beyond this corrupt, evil-saturated life if you reject God, as Carl did. So this leads us to the question, what is Scripture's answer to those who have doubts or even embrace skepticism? How should, un- how should you handle unbelief in your heart? How should anyone do that? In our text today, this is an account of two confrontations that result in a blessing by the risen Christ offered to you if you turn from unbelief and embrace faith in him. Again, this is an account of two confrontations that result in a blessing by the risen Christ offered directly to you if you turn from your unbelief and embrace faith in him. Now, let me provide a little bit of a background on the gospel of John, because we're jumping in pretty far in the back here. John wrote down this eyewitness account of the life of Jesus shortly after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. John's gospel is the last of the four, of the four gospels to be written, and John stands out um, in that while some of, uh, some of the details overlap with, say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, John has the largest amount of content that is not repeated in the other gospels. More than that, John is much more focused on the theological truth of Jesus' life. So much, uh, uh, so much so that the themes of the gospel clearly portray that this is an evangelistic gospel. In several ways, um, it, is, it is evangelistic to the Jews, and the Jews first, and to, give, to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. But it's also meant for Gentiles, for people who are not from a Jewish background, because it's a strong emphasis on Jesus as God. The Gospel of John is the most beloved of the four Gospels due to its theological and spiritual emphasis, and especially for the prologue of the book, where Jesus is introduced as the divine Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the word was God. John emphasizes by the, by the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the etern- and eternal life that comes with believing in Jesus Christ as the Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies and who is God in the flesh. There's a practical side of John as well. He uses simple language, does he not? He's speaking to the common man, and yet he's able to be so, so clear. John doesn't cut any corners. He tells you up front, look, Jesus is God. And as God, he existed before the creation even existed. And now he's come in the flesh. This is so personal. And Jesus is so in, in personal and intense in John's account. His encounter with Nicodemus at night, if you remember, emphasizing the supernatural birth, being born again. His exchange with the woman at the well, offering her living water, which is faith. Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees, the, the seven famous I am statements which hearken back to Exodus and Moses in the burning bush. Jesus says, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. But our text comes after all of these profound events, including his death upon the cross. We find ourselves uh, in some of the first eyewitness accounts of Jesus after, after, after he has risen from the grave. Chapter 19 ends with the burial of Jesus, and chapter 20 starts with the empty tomb. In verses 1 through 10, John records Mary Magdalene and two of the disciples, himself and Simon Peter, finding the empty tomb. And in verses 11 through 18, Mary is reported as the first to encounter Jesus. She then brings her joyful news to the disciples. And finally, in verses 19 through 23, which I read for context, Jesus, on the Sunday after his resurrection, appears to the disciples in a closed room, providing them proof of his physical body and giving both the first commission and gifting them the spirit. And this is where we pick up in our text. And if you guys are taking notes or following along, I'm splitting it by scene. So it's going to be scene one, the disciples' confrontation with Thomas. And that starts in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, we aren't sure exactly why Thomas was not with the disciples, but based upon where he shows up elsewhere in the book of John, I think we can come up with an educated guess. In chapter 11, this is where John records the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Um, I'm going to read a little bit out of there. Verse 11 and and onward says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but but I go so that I may awaken him out of that sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So when Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, our Thomas in our passage, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. This is a really pessimistic response, isn't it? Jesus had already made it clear. I'm not talking about sleep. But Thomas says this knowing that. So he's he's coming at it from a very, hey, let's go die with him. So if you turn to chapter 14, if you're following along, um, this is also another uh, accounting of Thomas. And it's during the upper room discourse that John records. And Jesus says that he must leave his disciples um, and, and they're bothered by this. 
They want to go along with him. And this is something that Peter says. Now, starting in verse 3, Jesus is speaking. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive myself to you, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Verse 6, you probably know pretty well. Probably most of you have it memorized. But did you know Thomas was the one who promised, uh, prompted Jesus' answer? Thomas's response here is again negative. You can kind of sense the worry in his words. Lord, we do not know. How do we know? So in both prior instances where John records Thomas, he has what we might call a glass half empty perspective. He seems to have a dark way of looking at things. And yet he is energetic and ready to respond. Based upon this evidence, I think we can conclude that Thomas has taken his Lord's death harder than the rest. And he had probably chosen to isolate himself, or at the very least, be apart from the group after all that had happened. Like my friend Mr. Hale, Thomas likely dealt with the kind of despair that comes with a pessimistic attitude about life. But the other disciples tried to counter this pessimistic attitude. Verse 25 says, So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. In the Greek, what you see rendered in the English translation as we're saying to him is an unusual imperfect plural verb, and its use here signals something to us. It is best understood in this context as the individual acts of multiple agents. So what does that mean? Well, it means that each of the other disciples, one by one, were trying to convince Thomas that they had seen the Lord, but he wasn't having it. Thomas, his closest companions, were trying to comfort him with the testimony that they carried, but he didn't, he didn't want to accept it. Verse 25 continues, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. John includes these vivid, vivid details of Thomas's response to the, the disciples. In this response, I just want to point out four really important observations. The first is that one of the uh, details, or were the details in particular that Thomas says, or uh, in his in his response, um, is the imprint, and and this is a very specific Greek word that indicates. Um, this, the, the curvatures, the indents of Christ's literal, literal and physical wounds. This is why I was pointing to my hand and my side. It, it's, it gives us this very vivid picture of his wounds. And no matter how we look at the justification of this, this expectation that Thomas demands, it's important to notice that this kind of detail is focused upon Christ's atonement. Even here, Christ's atoning sacrifice is central That which he endured is the expectation and the distinguishing mark that certifies Jesus as the true Christ who endured Christ and has risen from the grave. Christ's death, his substitutionary sacrifice is so important that he preserved the scars of his sacrifice upon his resurrected body. I don't know about you, but when I think of Christ um, as the firstborn of all creation in his resurrected body... I often want to, want to ponder whether or not he, uh, I will have his abilities. Uh, seems like he can teleport, does it not? <laughs> uh, it, it, um, 
I kind of think of how convenient that would be for Pastor Carl. He would be preaching here on Sunday, and he'd be somewhere else, and then he could be preaching there, you know. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, in addition, uh, Christ in his incorruptible nature, I, I often think about that as well, about being free from sin. And I th- I'm sure some of you guys share those, those, those thoughts as you think about the, the resurrected Christ. Yet the text does not focus upon those things. Rather, the focus is upon the scars of Christ's sacrifice. And this is because in order for the salvation of sinners to be accomplished, only the only innocent man in history had to willingly offer himself as the sacrificial lamb. That sacrifice as the necessary and pure son of God was absolutely what was needed for our sins to be forgiven. Not only was this a qualification to cover sins, but it was, but it was the qualification for him to, to endure the dreaded wrath of God because of those sins. Christ, through the sacrifice of his human body on the cross, met the expectations for your salvation. And that brings us to the next observation about, about this verse. It has to do with what Thomas is demanding. Unless these expectations are met, I will never believe. Now, what did the other disciples see? They saw the risen Lord. Now, the Lord showed them, but we don't know if they actually touched him. But here, Thomas is saying, I have to see and touch him. He's going far beyond what the other disciples got. God's expectation is clear when it comes to witnessing. He says two to three witnesses. Thomas got ten. And yet Thomas's expectations were far above what God's are. This kind of unrealistic expectation reeks of the kind of entitlement attitude that we as sinners often demonstrate. A snobbery that takes for granted all that God has given us freely. It ignores the free gifts of God, the good things we've been given on our life. The very breath you breathe, the life you have. And when you dismiss all those things, treating them as trivial, as if they're not enough. And now you're demanding even more? How foolish. Thomas expected something from Jesus, which he had no obligation to fulfill. How many unreasonable expectations do you impose upon God, upon your, your Savior, Jesus Christ? Consider your daily life. How often do you get upset about your circumstances? And all of those, those things that stem from, from uh, the, the circumstances that you're in. You think you deserve more, something better. But we're Christians. We should be marked by thankfulness for what we've already received. The third ob- observation about this text is that um, Thomas says, I will not believe. Or there's even some translations that render it, I will never believe. This is the strongest negative in the Greek language. Often um, we hear uh, Thomas referred to as doubting Thomas, which is true as far as it goes. But James says that doubt is like a surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind, wavering between two opinions. But Thomas is not wavering. He is clearly and decidedly chosen unbelief. This is clear rebellion against the testimony that the Lord has provided him. How often do you straight up reject the testimony that God has given you in his creation 
and his scripture and all of the wonderful things that he displays of himself to prove his existence to you. To prove that the salvation in his son, Jesus Christ, is absolutely the truth and that nothing else in the world can compete with it. This is a serious sin and it's not to be taken lightly. The last observation in Thomas's response is what the Net Bible renders, I will never believe it. Now, it isn't in the Greek, but it's an implied. And that's specifically because this is referring to the resurrection, the, res- the, the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's not refusing to believe in Jesus as Messiah per se. That's, that's necessary, um, but in a sense, uh, that's a conclusion that's drawn from believing that Jesus has, has risen from the be- dead. Think of what John- Thomas here is re- rejecting as a prerequisite, if you will, for embracing other necessary truths of Christ. Once it's accepted that Christ has actually risen from the dead and defeated death, all those other beliefs follow. He's Messiah. He's Lord. He's God. Thomas rejects that Jesus is indeed risen from the grave and he demands physical evidence. This kind of unbelief leads to a hardening that the book um, of Hebrews warns about, a hardening of the heart. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brethren that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. It goes on to use the first generation of Israelites redeemed out of Egypt, um, wandering in the desert as an example of those who were punished. They were kept from the promised land, and it was all because of unbelief. The book of Hebrews isn't giving warnings to unbelievers per se. This is a warning to those who claim the name of Christ. Are you stifled by unbelief in your life? Is unbelief a barrier to you embracing the great gifts that God has given you? Thomas let unbelief stifle his faith for an entire week. So if you're following along, we're going from the first scene, which is disciples' confrontation with Thomas, to the second scene, which is Thomas's confrontation with the risen Lord. Thomas's confrontation with the risen Lord, starting in verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. The doors locked or the doors having been shut indicates that the doors were not a barrier to the risen Lord Jesus. And this is the same phrase included in the previous scene that we read at the beginning where Jesus appeared to disciples for the first time in in verse 19. This is meant to indicate that the factors were basically the same as the first time Jesus appeared earlier in the week. This is also an indication that the disciples were indeed already gathering on the first day of the week, on Sundays. We don't know yet if this was for worship, like we're, we're here doing this morning, but they were gathering already. Jesus says, peace be with you. If you want to turn to John 14, 27, this gives us some insight to what Jesus, why Jesus says this. Jesus speaking to his disciples in, in, in chapter 14, verse 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the, wor- uh, the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. 
If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Jesus says, peace be with you, as if he's saying, I told you so. Here I am. I told you I would come back to you after I went away. And here I am. Embrace the peace that surpasses understanding. Jesus clearly prepared them for his resurrection. And now he is claiming, um, he's claiming everything that he said in chapter 14. They had no reason to, to be fearful, no reason to be unbelieving, for he has predicted his death. And now he's back. Verse 27 continues. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. The Lord's words are meant directly for Thomas. He's not speaking to the other disciples here. Jesus also includes four imperatives in this. That's four commands telling Thomas what to do. Jesus is using the exact same language that Thomas used in his demands of the risen Lord. He, he's using the, the exact same phraseology. And, and so that, that brings us to several important observations again. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say we're going to do about four observations of this particular passage. The first is that Jesus provides the fullest opportunity for Thomas to do exactly as he demanded in order to believe. And our Lord did this, even though he had no obligation to do so. Jesus includes every detail that Thomas included. He told Thomas to use his fingers, to, to, to reach out his hand. He offers the full empirical experience. This is a profound expression of the mercy and the kindness of our risen Lord. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Paul in 2 Corinthians speaks of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And this is a consistent with the, with the character that Isaiah also identifies long before Jesus came. He says, a bruised reed he will not break. A dimly lit, excuse me, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He does not treat Thomas as he deserves. And he does not treat any of you as you deserve. What do you deserve? Hell for your sins. All of us do. But yet, every breath that you take today, every moment that you have right now, being able to sit in this room and listen to this message, that is grace and mercy by God. The second observation that, that we'll look at for this particular passage is that this mercy points um, this mercy in specifically is evidence that, that uh, Christ gives Thomas. He ex um, God extends evidence to you and I in nature and scripture. I mentioned this earlier. And once again, he doesn't have any ob ob obligation to do this. But what does this tell, tell you about your witness to other people? That you should be merciful in using that evidence to persuade people of Christ. Now, this is the discipline of, of, of apologetics that um, uh, George talked about earlier. It's about learning about reasons for why you have the hope in Jesus Christ. Things like reliability of scripture. Things like the reasons that God exists. 
And you can share those with others. But let me be clear. While I encourage you to seek to defend your faith and provide reasons for why you believe, even making a positive case with the discipline of apologetics, I don't mean to say that apologetics is the answer to skepticism. Okay? That's not what our text here indicates. Rather, the point I'm making is it is absolutely incumbent upon Christians to show the kind of mercy that Christ shows. And Jesus shows here mercy in extending an evidential case to Thomas when he didn't have to. You should want to answer skeptical, skeptical questions of your neighbors or your coworkers, your family members. You, if they come at you with a question, be willing to look up the answer to that and give it to them. We want to imitate our Savior, do we not? However, the answer to defeating skepticism is not providing evidence. Rather, it's obedience by the humble submission to Christ's commands, which brings us to our our third observation, is that Jesus commands Thomas to stop being skeptical and believe. The word he uses in the Greek for unbelieving is the same word used a couple more times in the rest of the New Testament to identify unbelievers. This is a command to reject unbelief and embrace faith. And you can count on the fact that this command extends to everyone. Just as Thomas here is commanded to reject unbelief, you are commanded to do the same. And what follows, if you do so, is is repentance and faith in Christ. For skepticism to be overcome, obedience to Christ's commands is absolutely necessary. This is necessary because of who Christ is. And that brings us to the next observation. The very last one that we'll we'll cover on this particular verse. And that is that Christ's words revealed that he heard Thomas's words verbatim. Why is that so important? This is undeniable proof that Jesus's divine attribute of omniscience was something he still possessed. Jesus saw every need or excuse me, every deed and heard every word that Thomas uttered. And he sees every deed and hears every word of you. Thomas didn't need a preacher's exposition of this text to understand that it was a demonstration of Christ's divinity. The moment he heard Christ utter these words, he knew how to respond. Verse 28 says, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. This proclamation by Thomas is unique and worshipful. It echoes chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 14, all at once. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. Jesus is identified as the Word. John opened with several other titles for the Savior. This is all in chapter 1. The Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. Yet here in this chapter and in this verse is the ultimate climax of John's gospel. It's reached by this proclamation of his last skeptical doubting disciple saying, my Lord and my God. John brings an inclusio to chapter one. He goes from telling the reader that the Jesus is God, him just saying it to closing and unfolding the whole story with the, with, with the most skeptical disciple, Jesus, uh, uh, Thomas, excuse me, who comes to this full realization of his godhood. So profound. This is a truth 
that, that all of us should be meditating on, thinking about, about the person of Christ, who he is, his godhood, his humanity. Jesus was God in the flesh. This truth is, is confessed. And Jesus is indeed before all things, and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. For by him all things were created, and he is the exact representation of God's nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. All this Thomas encompasses in his definition of the risen Christ as God of the universe. This confession is only rivaled by Peter's in Matthew 16, 16, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yet this is still, in my understanding, the most explicit confession of Christ's deity by one of his disciples. So encouraging, is it not? While this account demonstrates that even among God's people, there will be hardness of heart. This also demonstrates that those same people can be brought around by the work of Christ in their heart. You see, it's not the sign proper here that has caused Thomas to believe. Jesus is very explicit throughout the Gospel of John, saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Thomas could not have given this expression of his own accord, but only by the work of the Spirit and confrontation with his risen Lord. Have you confessed Christ as Thomas has? Have you seen the the work of the Spirit convict you of sin in your life? This is, this is a very profound conviction, is it not? Thomas was convicted of his unbelief, and instead of wallowing in his fail, failure, what does he do? He worships. He worships Christ. Jesus responds to Thomas' confession in verse 26, saying, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Jesus says these beautiful words, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. You who do not see and yet believe, you are blessed, every one of you. A blessing is an authoritative pronouncement of God's favor. When you consider Jesus' blessings, you should be compelled to think of the first chapter of, uh, or excuse me, the fifth chapter of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. Um, This is where he brings up very specific characteristics. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it goes on. And much like those blessings, we have here a blessing in John. And often theologians refer to that as a beatitude. Yet this is far more familiar to all of us, is it not? What Jesus describes, he describes one of those in in this particular blessing, every one of us, who have come after the ascension of Christ. And that is indeed amazing. You who believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that Christ, that he is the son of God, God himself in the flesh, the second person of Godhead without receiving empirical evidence as Thomas has, you are promised a blessing by Jesus. And you might ask, well, what exactly is that blessing? Well, it has several aspects. We're not going to explore all of them. But here in this text, it's very clear that one aspect of that is that your, over, your unbelief is overcome by the power of God in Christ Jesus. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, when you experience the blessing of salvation, that's part of this. That's part of this blessing. 
Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must demonstrate faith in his death, resurrection, and his divine human person. And by repenting of your sins, that's turning away completely and placing all your faith and trust in Christ. I want to ask you today, have you done this? Have you, have you repented? Have you turned away from your sin and trusted in Christ alone? Consider the flip side of this blessing quickly. It also functions as a warning, does it not? And especially in our day, a warning against the modern signs, uh, modern craving for signs. To demand a sign is what Christ has not promised. Did he not, did he not, uh, go after the Pharisees for all of their asking for a sign. He does not promise you and I a sign. We have a sign right here. Now you might be hearing this and you might think, this message isn't for me. I'm a believer. Ah, here's the rub. Thomas wasn't some hardened skeptic off the street. He was one of the 12 disciples. Thomas had spent the last couple of years with the Lord. Unlike the Pharisees, he was there for the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Unlike Pilate, who asked the question to Jesus' face, what is truth? Thomas was there when Jesus said, I am the truth. Thomas was there for many of the miracles and revelations of Christ, all except for the one time when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. He had walked with the Lord. He had been blessed under our Lord's teaching, not live stream, not Zoom, Blood and flesh, open air preaching. He got to see that. He watched as Jesus died upon the cross. And, and, and just, just as he had predicted. And he even had several eyewitnesses, his own brothers in the ministry, men closest to him, testifying to him. He had more than you and I will ever even dream of having for empirical evidence. And yet, when push comes to shove, when the pressure was on, when Thomas was tested in this small way, he failed. This reminds you a little bit of Peter, does it not? This moment of denial. This is Thomas's denial, if you will. And I think it's important to think of it that way. Because the way the world is looking today, it may not take long before Christians, that's you and I, are marginalized, pushed to the fringes of society, mocked and ridiculed, rejected and shamed. And when those moments come, and notice I didn't say if, I said when those moments come, will you demonstrate faith in your Lord? Will you confess his name when the pressure is on? Or will you falter in unbelief? That time isn't here yet, but in order for you to come to a better understanding of whether you can answer that question, now is the time to do internal reflection. Now is the time to examine your own heart right now. And take that before the Lord. Does your life demonstrate life and faith in Christ? Or does it reflect what you see all around you, which is a culture of unbelief? Jesus' words, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe, mirror 2 Corinthians 5, 7, which says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. This is what faith is. It is exactly what Jesus says it is here, that you who do not see still believe. Hebrews 11.1 says, now faith is what? If you guys know it. Amen. 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. In Hebrews, after this verse, it goes into the chapter we call the hall of faith. Of men who lived before Christ and never got to see the fulfillment of the promise. And yet you, you are on the other side of that fulfillment, are you not? You have more reason than any other person in the time in history. Do you not have the full testimony of the Old Testament leading up to Christ? The New Testament revealing Christ. And 2,000 years of church history of faithful men preaching Christ to the nations. Yet if, if, if this is you, if you're the one saying, I'm Thomas, have heart. Jesus, was, had, Jesus had mercy on Thomas the skeptic, and he will have mercy on you as well. I would encourage you to cry out, just as the father of the demon who possessed a boy did in Mark chapter 9. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18. Paul also says in Romans 8.25, But if we hope for what we do not see uh, through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. That's not that, That's the... The Christian life, is it not? We are waiting eagerly. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror, but dimly, or we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Faith is not a thing. It's not an end in itself, as some false movements teach. Instead, faith is a vehicle. It's a means to believe in an object, and that object is Jesus Christ. And faith is a means to an end. And that end will be the day you die or the Lord returns. And on that day, you will no longer need that faith. Why? Because the object of your faith will be standing before you, Jesus Christ. On that day, you face him. And we know what he says on that day, does he? Do, do you not? If you've read the Gospels, he either says, well done, good and faithful servant. Or he says, away from me, I never knew you. So either you repent of your sin and you put your faith alone in Jesus Christ, or you do not. If you have not done that, I plead with you today, right now. Now's the time. Cry out as Thomas did. My Lord and my God, turn away from your sin. Fall completely on Jesus. Reject the world and you will be blessed. Just as everyone is here today who believes in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. The Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote this account of these two confrontations to encourage you to reject unbelief and embrace faith. Today is the day to reject unbelief. And today is the day to cry out to Jesus. And if you do so, you're going to be blessed. John closes the section of his text we are in today with these words. Verse 30, therefore many signs, or excuse me, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. But, uh, excuse me, which are not written in this uh, book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you, do you recall Carl Hale, who I spoke about earlier? I want to read a little bit from his testimony again. Now he's speaking at this moment from the perspective of unbelief from when he was still an unbeliever. Atheists are resigned when death comes because they have no faith 
that human beings can and will live again in God's presence. I believed that death was the end and that human existence was absurd, meaningless, a cruel joke. So I finally gave up. I quit. I was finished. I let myself sink below the surface, into the deep waters below. This thing I had fought against with all my strength for so many years, I could no longer fight. I had no faith and no hope. I simply gave up. But then something wonderful happened. It was when I began to let go of everything that was me, my dreams, my ideas, my hopes, my doubts, my fears, that the grace of God came over me like a mountain of honey and and renewed my heart and my mind. I cried out to Jesus to help me. And to my surprise and disbelief, he not only heard me, but he reached his hand into those cold, dark waters and saved me from drowning. He lifted me up from the murky waters and set me upon the rock, which is Christ Jesus himself. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for inspiring this, this text. And I, and I just pray that you would allow this, this account of Thomas to, to, to work on our hearts, to make us examine everything in our lives. Purge the unbelief from within everyone here. Cause them to, be re- to repent and believe in you and to repent daily of their sin. Lord, help us to focus upon the, the center of all scripture, which is your son, Jesus Christ. The eternal son of God who came in the flesh, died for our sins, rose from the grave, ascended to the father is at the right hand of God, the father of you on his throne, waiting for the day that he will come again in glory. Lord, help us be faithful to him until that day in Jesus name.